Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Please send along a comment or question through our comment form on the website, or please email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, as you know from last week, our introduction, our overview of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, the book of Romans, we commonly call it in scripture in the New Testament, you know from that episode that we are going to dive into the book of Romans today. And today we're going to address chapter one, we're going to at least begin to address chapter one. You might remember that the theme of this book is the righteousness of God or justification by faith is certainly a sub-theme. And Paul goes to detailed lengths to explain really all of theology, but specifically the gospel. And he does so in such a thorough way because we believe he wrote this book from Corinth just before a trip to Jerusalem, and we believe he was afraid for his life. He loved the church at Rome, and Rome was the center of the uh, civilized world. Now, Christians would have been thought of as the spiritual or religious outcasts because they didn't worship the false idols. Over 100 of them, historians tell us, that were commonly, these graven images were commonly uh, worshipped by those in Rome. Romans were smart they were really the, they thought of themselves at least, and evidence sort of supports this, that they were the center of the civilized world in terms of inventions, in terms of uh, being thought leaders. And the church at Rome was, was populated by both the Jewish people and Gentiles. We believe there was a Gentile majority. We think that majority might have been 60, 65%. That means that 35 or 40% were Jewish. So we're going to dive in today. Paul writes this letter to this church that really didn't have, at this point, apostolic founding. And by that, I mean, we don't find anything in the historic record to support some sort of founding by the apostle Peter, as is commonly thought in some circles. We don't find an apostolic visit by Paul. So Paul was concerned about he had heard of this church. He respected this church. We'll read about that in a moment. And he was concerned about their having the proper apostolic support. So here we go. Romans 1.1. Now, if you're driving or if you are otherwise occupied working out or doing whatever you do when you listen to this podcast, I'm going to read Romans 1 for our benefit. If you're home or you have the opportunity to take a look at uh, the English Standard Version of the Bible. That is the translation I'm going to be reading from, and I'm going to read all of chapter one. I'm just going to read it through the first time, 
And then we'll come back and talk about some of the key thoughts. This is by no means going to be a thorough exposition with parsing of every word in this chapter in particular. We'll slow down at various points as we go through this book, and we will sort of speed up and summarize here and there as well. So I'm reading from the book of Romans, chapter 1 and verse 1 and following. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations." including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those who are those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who are driving or who are otherwise occupied, that was one sentence. Romans 1, 1 through 7. So now verse 8. First... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory 
of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of the bodies of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves their due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So, this is Romans 1. I just read uh, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 32. And I want to just share a couple of key thoughts. Some of these things are rather obvious, and others maybe not so much. It was customary during the first century to begin a letter like this with the first name of the writer. And so, Paul introduces himself, and he calls himself a servant or slave. And this is language that would have been familiar. There's some rather significant percentage of this Roman audience that might have been slaves or bond servants. Paul makes it clear in this introduction, this lengthy one-sentence introduction, that he sees himself as a slave and his master is Jesus Christ. So he introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ who is called to be an apostle. So he was commissioned by Christ. Acts 9, 6 talks about that. He had seen the risen Lord, we know, from 1 Corinthians 9, 1, I believe it is. And he received divine revelation. Now, several of his writings make that clear, but Galatians 1, 10 through 12, I believe, and 15 through 17 sort of document this divine revelation that Paul talks about in Romans 1, 1. And he references the gospel already. He said he is set apart for the gospel of God, called to be set apart for the gospel of God, called to be an apostle. Now, the difference between apostle and disciple is is significant. You can read about that another time, but but this apostolic calling is is very special and only applied to 
a handful of people. The, the original group was 12. And it, whereas a disciple is simply a follower of Christ. We have disciples today. We don't have apostles that are specifically set apart, even though some denominations call some people apostles from time to time. The New Testament definition doesn't include people beyond this first century that we just referenced. So verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, that is that is significant to this audience. This gospel of God, this good news of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. And then Paul makes clear what he's talking about in verse three. He says, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. I now read Matthew 1 with with some excitement, some sense of enthusiasm, since I realize now that this prophecy that Christ would descend from David is significant, and I realize now that that litany in, in Romans 1 is not just there to bore the reader, but is there to document the generations that bridge this gap to Christ, to Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on in this long sentence and says in verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, the significance of his resurrection. So so we see in, in, in verse 3 and following, we, we know, and this sounds a little counterintuitive to me, but it's true, there was a time when Jesus Christ had not been born of the seed of David, but there was never a time, because he's eternal, there was never a time when he was not the Son of God. According to the flesh is a reference in verse 3 to his humiliation, his being born in the likeness of man as you know. Note in verse 4 the flesh and spirit contrast. His contrast, his exaltation came when he was resurrected by the Spirit of God. It's just, the only thing I'm going to say there is is this, uh, he was declared to be the Son of God. Here's what it says, in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The significance of the resurrection cannot be overstated. And historians document the resurrection of Christ, that he was crucified on this cruel Roman cross, died, was buried, and then was resurrected, was seen by many. And this is, in, in short, it's validation, it's verification that our Savior lives, that he was, in fact, not just a prophet, but he is the only person to be resurrected who remained resurrected and did not die a natural death later. He's ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. His conquering sin and death is significant, and the resurrection is a, is a significant part of that. And Paul just references this very comfortably in this, in this introduction. And then he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a familiar greeting of Paul's. So Paul just talked about an awful lot. Uh, one, one was his, his apostleship. It was, it was to bring the Gentiles into the, the body of Christian doctrine, 
to welcome the Gentiles aboard, to let them know that this gospel is for you too. And note that it is through God, Paul says, that that he received his apostleship. Paul is acknowledging an awful lot. This material is awfully rich. Grace and peace are used by Paul together. It's probably a, a synthesis, theologians think, of a, a Gentile and Jewish greeting. The word for peace is shalom, and the word for grace is charis. And he, he's clearly focusing on God's unmerited favor and love in this very warm greeting. So then we get to really the, that's the introduction, uh, verses one through seven, and we get to verse eight. And Paul says, this is really interesting to me. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul was not one for platitudes. And this was, this was not some sort of faint praise. This wasn't hyperbole. Uh, their faith at this church in Rome, probably because of their location, their strength, their having a, a, a Jewish element and Gentile element, uh, the Jewish element having been exiled and then returned, their faith was known throughout the world. And Paul just acknowledges that. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So the basis for his gratitude, Paul's gratitude, is that their faith in God, their faith in Jesus Christ, is proclaimed in all the world. And then he says in verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in in coming to you, sort of verifying that that Paul had not been to visit this church to this point. Paul is a prayer warrior. We see that very clearly in these two verses, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. And it's saying, for God is my witness, I mention you without ceasing always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul is modeling an awful lot of really good behavior. The apostles, you'll recall from Romans 6, they wanted to remain free of mundane obligations. Sometimes that section sounds a little arrogant when we read it, but they they gave priority to prayer. And I there's been much said about the, the life that Paul modeled, the life that the apostles modeled, and I've heard it mentioned that this emphasis on prayer in Acts 6 is really a model for pastors today. We, we actually don't model prayer as being as significant as it really is according to the New Testament. We think, you know, preaching first and prayer sort of way down the line sometimes. I mean, that's just because of our flesh, obviously, but... I think it's worth saying that prayer is highlighted here, even in Romans 1. He talks about his prayer, his life is just intertwined with prayer. It's this life of service. Now, Paul references prayer, and I, I don't want to stretch the scripture, but you can see that, that he, he talks in verse 8 about prayer being thankful 
In verse 9, he says, he says that with, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. It's, it's a personal prayer. It's for this particular church, for the people in this particular church. He, he references prayer as continual. It's a without ceasing. I, I do it all the time. I believe Paul lived. I don't believe it. I, I'm certain of it. Paul lived his life in a manner that that is consistent with Coram Deo before the face of God, recognizing that he's living his life, Coram Deo, before God's face at all times. He prayed without ceasing. Verse 9, he references the fact that he's sincere, he's earnest in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he indicates that some flexibility, that he, he wants to see them, he realizes that he lives according to God's will, but wants to see them, and he's submissive to God's will in his prayer. And then we read in verses 11 and 12, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And verse 12, he says, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He has very specific things that he prays for in chapter one of Romans 11. And then there's a little bit of a gear shift in, in verse 13. It says, I do not want you to be unaware brothers that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he had talked in verse 12 about this mutual encouragement. And I, I just love this language. It's, this is the Apostle Paul now, <laughs> and this is a guy who, who is spiritually informed, is, is living a gospel-centric life, has apostolic gifts, and he says in verse 11 that he longs to see them, and then he says that he may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you, so he wants to build them up. I often pray for my classes at Circle Christian School that we would, we would build each other up and I, I don't just make that up out of thin air. I, I see Paul modeling it here. In verse 12, he says, he, he explains, he says, that is, here's what I'm trying to say, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, Paul's getting at something that is important for us. It is this notion of community, isn't it? So I don't know whether you've, I guess most people have by now done the Myers-Briggs type indicator or some other Enneagram, or I guess that's the Christian version, or I've done the Wonderlake test and countless instruments that are affiliated with them and many others. Probably my most interesting class in grad school in the MBA program that I did uh, years and years ago was uh, Organizational Behavior and Development. And I went into that class, uh, the professor, I remember his name, it was Ken Morell. And he just loved crafting these instruments to assess learning style, personality type, management style, work style, all, all kinds of things. And he was working on, he was writing a book. And so he tested us periodically with these instruments. And I just found it so interesting because I, I went into the testing going, ah, this is, this is easy. I can manipulate this if I want to. And I found that with the really good instruments, you can try to manipulate them if you care to. It's kind of a silly exercise, but if you're just, as candid as you can be as you answer the individual questions, even though we probably aren't all objective about ourselves necessarily, but if you're as candid as you can be, sometimes you walk away with really helpful feedback. And 
One of the things that I learned about myself during that period and then in the banking industry beyond, because the banking industry relies on these assessments of various types, critical thinking tests and other batteries of psychological tests. One of the things I learned is that if you if you try to graph me or measure me on introversion and extroversion, I'm right in the middle. I think that's called an ambivert, although I don't run around calling myself an ambivert. I think as I've gotten older, I tend a little more toward introversion, but I'm not sure about that. And I, I don't think Paul is, if you notice, he doesn't qualify this. And I don't think he's talking about introversion or extroversion. I think he's talking about the way we build each other up in community, in Christian community. And I just like this, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now, the introvert in me, I will tell you that if I have to go to a a function that is purely social, even though it's at a church or my church or at a Christian school or, or I'm traveling to another school and or a ministry somewhere throughout the country to speak, I'm just not you know, jumping up and down for at the prospect of being in a room full of strangers or a room full of people I don't know well, or, or I feel pressure to make conversation. And so sometimes I'll, I'll actually dread these encounters, but I'm going to tell you something that is, is true. And I, I believe it's universally true among people. And I see this even in my students. If we make the environment safe, meaning we don't shine a spotlight on people and make them do a speech when they walk in the room, but we have a good, productive, constructive environment. I think mutual encouragement almost always among Christians almost always happens. I almost always leave thinking and often saying to my wife, wow, I was dreading that. And she'll say, yeah, you are grumpy on the way over here. Was I really? I didn't even notice. Uh, you were just a little little short, she'll, she'll call it, meaning my tone is a little different. And I'll, I'll say, well, I, I can't, can't believe how encouraging that was. Did you hear what this person said? Or did you see those two people interacting so positively when they had dealt with some difficult issue? Or did you hear that that person has been through something like we've been through? And I think that's that mutual encouragement that Paul's talking about in Romans 1.12. I really do. And I think we, one of the lessons, early lessons in this book, in this, in chapter one is that we should embrace this. So anyway, moving on, I just think Christian fellowship, if done properly so that we come into it with the right attitude, that it's not just kind of phoning it in and spending time with other Christians because the church calendar says we have to. I think our objective ought to be to mutually build each other up, to encourage each other. And it says in verse 12 that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul's not saying, well, there's a pecking order here. And, and you're going to be encouraged by my vast apostolic faith. No, Paul's saying, I'm going to be encouraged by yours too. It's not brainwashing. And I get so tired of people implying that about Christianity. It's not pixie dust. It's well-founded, well-reasoned faith. 
And we don't have to be ashamed of faith. We don't have to be ashamed to say, yes, faith is required. Faith is required to believe any scientific theory. Faith is required to some degree in the practice of medicine. It's informed faith. But, but there, there's some, some educated guessing and faith in certain principles. So anyway, I'm off on a tangent, but this mutually encouraging each other by each other's faith, talking about our faith. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. We're really talking about the impact of the word of God, of scripture, of the truths of scripture on our lives. And, you know, sometimes we fail to do that. There are some people at our church who do this so well, and it's so encouraging. It's okay to talk about baseball, the best sport on earth. It's okay to talk about other sports. It's okay to talk about vocational interests. All all of that is just fine. But underlying all of that, if our worldview is truly informed, if it's truly informed by our walk with Christ, a true Christian worldview, permeating everything we do is our faith. So there's this mutually building up that Paul is talking about. And then in verse 13, and I, I really like this because I know I read it a few minutes ago, but Paul is, he just sounds so human here. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he's a lot going on there. He's saying, I'm very human and I, I, I meant to come, but I, I got prevented somehow and and I haven't been able to, but I still intend to. I'd like to. Just this heartfelt sentiment. But then he says, he identifies the Gentiles particularly. He thinks of himself in, in many respects as the apostle to the Gentiles. That is not to say that he doesn't minister to the Jewish people in the church at Rome and in other locations. But this does mean that he sees himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. And then in verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Uh, read everyone when you read that. There's been a lot of work done on who the Greeks are there and who the barbarians are, both to the wise and to the foolish. He's saying, I'm under obligation because of my ministry. Now, just imagine if all of us looked at our calling, our ministry, our gifts, our spiritual gifts, to say it really technically the right way, giving us an obligation to everyone. Yeah, and they do give us an obligation to everyone. But notice how Paul says that I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And then he says in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So, so much there. The gospel is the, the good news of Jesus Christ it gets that term. The gospel gets gets misused. You, you hear people say the gospel truth when they're telling the truth about something that is a hideous misuse of the real gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, as you know. And then he says in verse 16, and we're going to unpack what that good news is. Paul is going to do it for us and we're going to walk through this, but we're going to deviate from that after a couple of verses here. So verse 16 of chapter one, a commonly referenced verse. In fact, I read this verse before a speech I did in uh, Pennsylvania to about 400 people who run Christian schools uh, years ago. It says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So Paul is saying, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel has gone to everyone now. The gospel is for everyone. It is this good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He's now introduced the theme of the letter, and that is justification by faith. He didn't use either of those words, justification or faith, but he says it is the power of God for salvation. Now he's talking about justification. He's talking about a legal transaction that makes a person righteous, gives a person right standing before God to everyone who believes, who has faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, I would imagine at this time in that church, the Jewish people could handle this. But Jewish people who read this outside of those who were well-informed theologically and who were informed on the gospel and who were truly saved by faith at this point, this would have been jolting. And their natural reaction at various times, Paul anticipates this, and goes a little further to explain because their natural reaction is probably, what do, you, what do you mean the gospel's gone to these Gentiles? And what is this justification by faith? And Paul's going to explain it beautifully. But here's what he says in verse 17, the next verse. For in it, now he's talking about the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. So now the sub theme justification by faith in these two verses has been introduced quite well. The righteous, the just shall live by faith. Now I don't want to be guilty of eisegesis and what I'm about to say could be construed that way, but I just want to make a point and I'm going to make the point and then I'm not going to speculate beyond the point because I think the point is made by scripture. Paul uses judicial language in the book of Romans. He knows he's got a sophisticated audience. Now he uses judicial language other places as well. But when he talks about justification, he's talking about right standing before God from a legal adjudication standpoint. And he's going to bring charges in a couple of chapters and he's going to do that using judicial language. And when he says in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, he's talking about the penal phase of a trial. There's no punishment phase, no condemnation, no no guilty verdict with its punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. So just know that you'll hear me reference from time to time as we walk through this, that Paul is using the language of the courtroom in many respects, and he uses it beautifully. But he says at the end of verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. So he's already talked about salvation. And now he says, so it's talked about justification by faith. But now he's saying, this is also how the righteous, those with right standing before God will live. In other words, the righteous will walk by faith. Now that we need to understand what that is, I think. And I think sometimes we, we forget that you know, we're, we're saved by faith. The gospel is sufficient for our salvation. The good news of Jesus Christ, this justification by faith in him alone. But then we think, well, wait a minute. I don't want to live that way. 
I'd like to kind of be more like the Pharisees and I'd like to live by works or checklist or wait a minute. I'd really like to live by religious custom. Well, hang on a second. I don't like the old religious custom, but I like the new religious style and custom. And I want to live that way. And everyone I meet, I vow from this point forward to say, have a blessed day to everyone I meet. Now, now, no, no offense if you do that. And some people do that very sincerely. But my point is this living by checklist is what we often prefer. We often see the gospel not as something we live by, not as something that informs us daily, not as something that we preach to ourselves, that we remind ourselves of, that we remember, to use the Old Testament word that Israel struggled with, that we remember what God has done. We remember who God is. This gospel is not only, and Paul's getting at this here, here in this verse, the righteous shall live by faith. So we're saved by faith. And according to the gospel, we are to then live also by faith. Now, Paul changes gears again in verse 18 We're going to leave it there for today. Verse 18 talks about the wrath of God uh, revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But I just want to point out here in closing that what's going to happen here is we're going to see that man, for whatever reason, and this is complicated because we have to go back to the Garden of Eden to, to really get at this, but man since that time, mankind has since creation has had this desire to be like God, has had this desire to be self-sufficient, self-reliant. And if you're like my students, you'll get tired of me talking about man's self-reliant, self-sufficient efforts. Then the rest of Romans 1, starting in verse 18, we're going to learn a little bit about what that self-sufficiency can look like when we just disregard God, when we say, I've got this, I can do what I want. In chapter 2, we're going to learn how the moralist looks at this still self-sufficiency, but it's wait a minute. I can be good enough. Chapter one, this, this section of chapter one, 18 and following is about man saying, I don't need to care. I can go do what I want to do. I'm self-sufficient in that respect. But then along come the moralist and Paul addresses them in chapter two and says, wait a minute. Those of you who, who are judging others who believe you can be good enough, who are practicing moralism, and we'll learn what that is a little bit. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. You're just as doomed. And then in chapter three, oh my goodness, there's none righteous, no, not one. And he goes through this litany. He goes back into this courtroom language and he presents 14 counts indicting us in our sin. I think you'll find it really interesting to pull the lens back just a little bit and look at Romans this way. I hope we we can do this in a podcast format in a God-honoring way. I hope this is a blessing for those of you who really enjoy getting in the weeds and parsing words. You're going to feel uh, like I like I move too fast. For those of you who like big picture overviews, you're probably going to say, wow, why does he slow down so much? And why didn't we get through more than 17 verses in one 43 or four minute episode? Well, My apologies. I want to kind of find that happy medium, that sort of middle of the road so that we can cover these such important concepts. And and again, the reason we're doing this, the reason for this study in Romans is it has made such a difference in not just my life, but in the lives of other people I know and in the lives of 
lots of people I don't know who are well known who who studied this book and had this eye popping moment to say, wait a minute, that's what the Christian life is really all. That's what life is about, first of all. And then that's what the Christian life is really all about. And I think we can knock down some idols along the way and some misconceptions. And I, I think Paul Paul does this beautifully. You have endured my rambling on about the introduction to the book of Romans, this epistle of Paul to the church at Rome. And you've seen that we have introduced now this theme, the righteousness of God and just this sub theme justification by faith. I'm okay with us calling the book of Romans, the theme of the book of Romans, either of those things, the righteousness of God or justification by faith. You can already see the beauty of this book in this early part of chapter one. You will not believe what happens as we continue to read through this book together. I hope this is helpful. Please send your comments along. I am happy to receive and respond to them. You can locate the purpose for our work and other information and a contact form at johnwarrenmedia.com. You can also send an email alternatively to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. So please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth with John Warren. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please uh, share this podcast episode on social media. We have built quite an audience. I'm grateful for you and uh, enjoy communicating with you. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.